Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nolcast. Bud, uh, here to kind of further bring people along as to where Florida State stands through spring. Addition of a quarterback uh, that we have to talk about the roster. Uh, we'll throw in kind of bits of information as they've become available to us and then try to uh, field some listener questions and very excited to be able to bring on the uh, the basketball knowledge uh, of the of this podcast with a podcast favorite Matt Minnick of Tomahawk Nation. Been fortunate to be able to draw upon his uh, his basketball knowledge throughout the course of the year, and he comes back uh, as we sit on the edge of the uh, basketball postseason. So hopefully, be able to provide a, a nice podcast for our listener base out there. As always, want to thank. Louisiana Hot Sauce, title sponsor of the Nolcast. Three simple ingredients, one fantastic product, fantastic partner for us as a uh, podcast. And thank you to them for being able to make the Nolcast possible. And I got a whole mess of uh, Louisiana Hot Sauce shirts that we're already sending out to lucky listeners. So pretty cool there. All right, let's open it up. Florida State got a quarterback and actually an eligible quarterback. Are you excited about this? I'm excited speaking in the macro sense. The more uh, micro that I get to it, some of my enthusiasm may wane, but I like the broader concept. Yes, I do, bud. He's a winner. He is Alex Hornerbrook of Wisconsin, a graduate transfer, so he is immediately eligible to play as soon as he gets on campus. He's a winner. That's that's all you need to know, right? <laughs> he, he, he is the quarterback. I judge quarterbacks based on wins. Yeah, yeah, win-loss record always. The most important stat, definitely. Uh, we're having a little bit of a laugh here. Hornerbrook, there's some things that scare you about him, but there's a, you know, there's the very real idea that he is a D1 eligible quarterback, and, and as you so uh, wonderfully wordsmithed on Twitter there, there is ability and availability. And uh, Hornerbrook, in that, in that respect, is a, is a nice little ad for the Florida State program. And availability is an ability. Yes. It is. Now, I looked into this some. I still think this is a net positive because anybody who has started like close to 30 games, I think it was, is is going to be a, a positive just in terms of unless he comes here and just completely wrecks the locker room or, or acts like a total jerk or something, which I don't expect he'll do, then you have a, an experienced backup quarterback, uh, albeit not, not a good one. He had a one-to-one touchdown-to-interception ratio in Big Ten play in his career. Yards per attempt, you would think, oh, well, if the guy's throwing that many picks, he's got to be taking a lot of chances, and certainly those have to pay off with big yards per attempt numbers. Uh, Not so. Actually, under seven yards per attempt uh, for his career. Uh, Rushing yards, non-existent, negative, actually, uh, negative rushing yards, and a quarterback rating of, I think, like 122 in conference play. And keep in mind, they play in the bad division of the Big Ten. They, They get to play in the West, which has been... Largely a mess over the last three years with Nebraska being down and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But look, the guy has a lot of experience. And Florida State, one thing that their quarterback room lacks behind James Blackman right now is decidedly is experience. And so you get him in here. Is he going to start? I would be beyond shocked. Is he a great fit for this system? Probably not. Is he the best option as the backup considering – your other options are a walk-on, who is a pretty good walk-on, but a walk-on nonetheless, and a kid in Jordan Travis who we still don't know if he's going to get that waiver. Uh, yes. And, and Ingrid, it occurs to me, man, how, how deftly did they have to thread this needle of finding a graduate transfer quarterback 
who would come in, understand that he's really not going to compete for the starting job. I mean, he's going to compete for it, but realistically, Florida State has a starter, right? Like, you need to find a kid who wants to be in a graduate program at your school for academic, because that's the way you can graduate transfer, is if you want to go into a program uh, that your current school doesn't offer, you can graduate transfer and be immediately eligible. This is kind of the, uh, the, the rule that Urban Meyer made famous when he was at Florida back in 06, when there was a corner for Utah. I think his name was like Ryan Smith, maybe. Is that, that ring a bell? I remember this. Didn't uh, didn't an old Duke point guard also transfer and try to play quarterback for for uh, Syracuse under this uh, one one of the original yes, people he, that he tried this as well? Yeah, I got it right. Yeah, Ryan Smith, born born uh, born nineteen eighty five, played for the Gators in college after he played for uh, for Utah. Using a new and scrutinized NCAA rule, Smith took twenty one credit hours during the summer of 06 to graduate and be eligible to play at the new college next season where he reunited with Urban Meyer and Florida, and they won the title that year. Um, and he was a good player, not an incredible player or anything. Anyway, so how tough is it to find a guy who, who is willing to come in, be a backup, leave the school that he's been at for four years, and he's been there starting for a couple years now, although I don't think he was going to be the starter this year because he's not very good, and like find a guy who's not so good that he's going to prompt James Blackman to consider going back into the transfer portal. Like that, that's a hard needle to thread, right? Like once you missed out on, on Fields and, and Hertz, who would probably come in and immediately take Blackman's job, I mean, once you miss out on those two guys, it's hard to find some guys, okay, I need you to be not good enough to where Blackman feels threatened and leaves because we really need to keep him. I need you to be somewhat experienced, and I need you to be okay with being a backup. They did it, though. It's a really, uh, it's a really nice transitional point uh, to where you point out some great uh, – some great things to remind as far as how hard of a how hard it is to find this this exact uh matching of kind of qualifications and it just kind of bridge you almost like a gap here you get through this year your quarterback rooms um not by no means a disaster uh if you can get through 2019 and Hornerbrook appears to be a big piece in allowing you to do that um one thing that and you kind of referenced it uh He's not coming to be a starter in in all likelihood, or at least he knows there's an existing starter. I'm not sure that his skill set and our existing uh, roster is the greatest uh, match either. In your opinion, is this a guy who is possibly trying to go into coaching and wants to learn a new offensive style? What do you think the appeal is for Hornibrook and or what brings him to Florida State? Well, it, it would certainly fit if he wants to do that. Uh, there, there's no doubt. So we had a question about this, right? Question reads, Bud Nigger, apologies, I'm sure my email is just adding to the onslaught of messages you've been blasted on this topic, so I'll keep it short. Uh, what does Hornerbrook, a three-year starter with negative 243 rushing guards and no rushing touchdowns, gain by coming to Brawl's system? I'll take the experience and leadership, but not sure why Alex would find this to be a good career move for his last year of eligibility. Well, it depends on how you define the word career, and I think you hit on an important, important topic here. Career in... Professional football is not going to happen because he's not good. He's not a good football player. He's just not good at football. But maybe a career in coaching, learning the Brile system, honestly, which is one of the sexiest, most highly regarded and in-demand systems you could run out there because it puts up points pretty much everywhere, is a huge deal. Learning Wisconsin system, not so much. Maybe he didn't want to sit around after potentially losing his job at Wisconsin, right? Like, I don't think he was going to be a starter this year. Maybe that would have been an uncomfortable situation up there 
maybe there was some uncomfortability uh, within the locker room and the culture uh, for him, potentially knowing that there was possibility he could not be the starter. Hell, millions of people move to Florida every year from Wisconsin because it's cold as hell up there and it's nice weather down here, right? So that's a possibility. Academically, it could be a possibility that Florida State has a program he wants to study. And I think going to the coaching would make a lot of sense if, if you get to pick up Bryle's system, right? Maybe you become a GA or something for a year or two after you get done playing. So I, I don't really see a downside to this unless somehow he were to cause some kind of cultural problem, which I don't anticipate because I think Florida State would have would have vetted that, right? If they thought, okay, this guy's a guy who's going to be a, be a problem if he comes in and, and you know pretty quickly realizes he's not going to win a starting job, then I, I think they would have not taken him. Spent a lot of time talking about the appeal for uh, Alex there and, and how much uh, he could stand to gain by learning kind of uh, browse the system in general. Uh, why don't we go ahead and start to talk about that more and uh, how it's being implemented on people that are existing members of the football team. But what have you kind of taken away so far from from spring and uh, everybody, whether it be the offense or the defense, talking about uh, – what the offense looks like and exactly how it's uh, how it's being implemented so far. So here's what I've been told, right? Basically, the, the plays they're running are, are pretty similar. There are, there's a few different variations, which I'm, I'm sure if you've watched Houston, you can probably pick up on. I, I think they're going to run more, more straight zone stuff and less pin and pull. Um, but I, the one thing I think is really potentially going to make a difference is if you know something, right? And, and, and it's your system, and, and you know it. And look, like Coach Browse knows this offense even better than Willie Taggart does, and certainly a lot better than Walt Bell does. I, there's just stuff at practice that he's picking up on, just little stuff that could lead to problems down the road that I'm sure that Walt Bell, who was sort of in some ways learning this offense on the fly last year, although he knew elements of it, probably just didn't pick up on. Just little nuances where – you know, if you're an expert in, in something, and and I think Browse is an expert in his offense, you know I, I feel like I I can go into a you know a file I'm working on or or, or a story or, or whatever, and you know look at it and just, bam stuff just pops out of you. You know think about this if you're sitting in your car on on a way to work, there's certain things at your job that you just you just get, and and I think it's that way with Browse in his office. He's going to pick out certain things. Hey, that's not the way we need to be running that. Oh shoot. With, with, with the way that, you know, that this guy does this, we, we might be pretty screwed when we try to run this play into this look. So we're, we're going to spike that. Or, hey, we, we can't run this play to this side against, against this kind of look because of this person's limitations. Or uh, just, you know, certain scheme-specific things, I, I, I think, are are definitely being noticed more by Bryles. Now, there's certain things that, that there's no doubt, man. Bryles and, and uh, Walt Bell noticed I guarantee you that there's there's some similarities. Like, oh man, personnel wise here is a little sketchy after, after, after the starters, right? That's that's certainly possible. But I, that that's a big thing. Practice is organized a little bit differently as as to Bryles' liking in terms of, of when they do their quarterback warm up stuff, uh, what he makes them go through, some of the drills. But most of the actual plays they're running are are fairly similar. I also think there's an element here. And this is kind of further down in their outline, but I I want to get your thoughts on this. Like, I, I'm sure Browse has watched film of last year, right? Like coaches all say, oh, I, I didn't watch any film of last year. Well, I, I guarantee almost all of them do. Do you think there's something to, to have in eight months to design the offense around the limitations of this offensive line? Because, like, last year they were pretty optimistic that 
if the starters stayed healthy, they, they could be pretty decent. This year, I, I don't think there's any illusions of grandeur about being pretty decent. Right? I think there's, man, maybe they can get to below average or, God, like in the best case scenario, give me, give me an average offensive line. But I think that if they're if they're turning their eye towards winning eight ball games in the regular season, can they go eight and four? I think there's a way you can sort of start to work on your offense, even from day one in spring, while you're evaluating guys, while you're saying, okay, this guy's better. This guy's never going to be able to play and do anything. Maybe we can get something to this guy who, we, who maybe was written off as a lost cause, what, a lost cause whatever. But I, I think there's something to be said for having that much time to design your offense in order to overcome some deficiencies. Because Browse didn't have to be here for last year, but he certainly got to see what he was working with. And I'm sure he can ask Randy, Randy, how much better can these guys be by fall? And I don't know what Randy would would say to him, but if it's like, hey, I I can get them to not be an embarrassment, but they they won't even be average, man. They're still going to be bad. They're just not going to be like, you know, worse than the Power Five bad. Then Kendall can say, all right, well, I, I can I can work with that. It's good to know what we think we might have in this group, right? So like Jalen Goss is probably going to be a pretty good player eventually. He shows some real aggression. Heck, even if you if you watch the open practice videos. He's firing off football. If you, if you look at the videos that, that, that Courtney puts up on, on Tomahawk, Jalen shows some some real uh, some real aggressiveness there, but he's also like 270, 275 pounds. That's not going to work in ACC play. He needs another offseason, which is why we thought he was a guy who was going to be a year three contributor at the earliest. But I, I think there's an element of, of that going on, and, and, and maybe we should specifically talk a little more kind of about the offensive line here Um because I, I do think it's going to be better than last year's. I think uh, I think there's certainly, if there was a position coach that you would want uh, Browse at this point to have a well-established working relationship and, and uh, you know, the guy that, that you can go to straight off, cut any kind of BS, give you an accurate assessment of the pieces that you're working with, then, yeah, it would be Clements. It would be the guy that has uh, continuously worked with him. So I think to an extent – Florida State is fortunate in that pairing. And like you referenced earlier, like the offensive line being a massive liability is going to come to no one's surprise or shock at this point. And uh, maybe you were in last year's uh, lead up to the season kind of somewhat able to put some blinders on if you if you convince yourself that the first five was going to stay together. I think at this point, you know, even the most optimistic of, of individuals has to has to realize that the offensive line – is going to face challenges at a level that no other position group is probably going to be when it's compared to the level of talent that you have to put out on the field. But last week we mentioned that we had uh, kind of some of the broader details of our spring game meetup at uh, Madison Social. This week we'll be able to deliver some of the more finer points of it. Uh, Proud to say that we're actually going to be doing this, going back to home base for this one. Uh, This one will be at Madison Social. So uh, very excited to to kind of operate from uh, from the mothership there. We will open at 10 o'clock. Anybody can come on by uh, anytime afterwards. Have 144 pint glasses that will be tweeting out images. And I believe Madison Social has already uh, shared what it looks like. But uh, nice quality pint glass. 
that uh, for either $15 can get you a uh, Noel Cast Bloody Mary, very much kind of on brand there, or uh, any beer is uh, $10 and the glass is included as well. So anytime we've been able to do an event like this, whether it be for the spring game, whether it be uh, before the Virginia Tech game, it's been absolutely fantastic time and uh, would love for any of you guys that are in Tallahassee to uh, try to include us in your plans and always enjoy uh, being able to interact and, and meet our listener base. That's right. Last year we did the t-shirt. This year we were doing the pint glass, but you still get us, which is really the, the, the whole reason you're going. And to see Matt and, and Eric and, and Matt's social crew, and uh, we're actually doing it at the mothership. Not, not at Township this year, which I like Township, but Matt's social is is the spot, right? I mean, that's that's the original. That That's, that's the OG spot and, and our OG sponsor. So very excited to do it there. We know we're going to have a lot of listeners show up and, uh, and say hello and uh, whether you're there for the whole day or, or, or just for an hour or two, or hell, just, just to come say hello, sounds good to me. Look forward to meeting y'all. We will talk a little bit more in detail about some of the pieces, uh, some of the positions that might be providing a little bit more clarity as far as who's going to be where. Why don't we start at center? By all accounts, uh, Bavion Johnson, whether it be play on the field or uh, just the way the roster's shaking out or anything else, appears as though he's going to be your your day one center as far as as we stand right now. Yeah, he's been lining up there consistently in, in practice with the first team. By uh, as the roster's constructed, do you basically mean because there's not really other options? Because there's not a <laughs> viable option. Yes, that, that is what that reference was. A little bit of a euphemism, but yes, absolutely. I, I think that's uh, I think that's right. Yeah, baby on – I'm not ready to give up on baby on. We actually had this question last week. Did, did we answer this question last week about, hey, wh- why don't you lump in Juwan Williams and Abdul Bello with, with baby on? Or rather, baby on with those two as far as new guys you don't really think can play? And it's because I, I think that baby on had a higher floor coming in than those two did. Those two actually might have had a higher ceiling than baby on, but the floor uh, to me matters there. I I think baby on may be able to be a uh, an average ACC center this year. We'll see. I and mean, maybe he can be better than that. I I don't know. To your point about having that great working relationship with Clements, by the way, you know, Kendall can go, hey, put this thing in comparison to ha- what we had at, at, at Baylor or what we had at Houston. Like, was Houston's O-line better than what we have here? Like, what what are we dealing with? I, I, you're so dead on, right? With, with them having that working relationship like, like that, if you're a Florida State fan, you have to be happy that Clements came in. Look, even if Clements wasn't an upgrade over Greg Fry, and I think he is an upgrade over Greg Fry, by the way, but even if he wasn't, what if he was just purely neutral? The added benefit that your new OC has of having worked with him for over a decade is not tangible, but it's certainly valuable. There's there's no doubt about it. Tackle-wise, I think they have better depth at tackle than, than they had last year. Um, you know, Juwan Williams is still getting some reps with the ones. Jay Williams, the junior college kid they brought in, uh, he doesn't look like he's going to be a an immediate starter for them. Uh, I think his technique is even further behind than uh, than I realized it was, certainly. So I, I think I was wrong there. Um, I, I thought he would have a chance to compete for a starting spot, and maybe he still will. I, it's hard to judge just how much, you know, just kind of the strides a kid out of Juco can make because it, it's Juco. They, oftentimes they don't get a lot of coaching, and we know he does have a lot of athleticism, having been a, a former uh, receiver, actually, all, all the way back in high school. But Dickerson is still playing tackle quite a bit in practice, and if he's healthy, I think he might be your best tackle uh, when when the uh, the transfer from Northern Illinois comes in. Um, who's not Alexander? Uh, what's his name? Um, shoot, I'm blanking on. Anyway, the, the Northern Illinois transfer we talked about four episodes ago. 
When he comes in, I think he might be a guy who could be an immediate starter at tackle. Jalen Goss is in the mix. I I think that's extremely encouraging for the long term. It, is it discouraging in the short term, in your opinion, that, that he would be a guy who could be in the mix for a starting spot as a redshirt freshman? Yeah, I mean, it feels uh, it feels like it might be a little bit rushed, uh, like you referenced a second ago. I think he would be well-served to be a, a year three contributor. But uh, at this point, kind of all hands on deck. And maybe if you've got a coach that thinks he can work with a guy and and mold him, and it certainly makes uh, this offseason all the more important for what he can do as far as physically putting himself in place to play uh, against ACC quality linemen. And uh, not that I immediately knew it at the time either, but Ryan Roberts is the gentleman from NIU that we're talking about. It's been a long week. I think I'm actually home like seven or eight days in March. So been been traveling Every a lot time I talk camps. to you, you're, you're in a hotel room in some other part of the country. So, yeah, I, I know right now it's kind of your, uh, your season when it comes to evaluation and a camp here, there, and everywhere. It's so weird how it's been, man. I've, I've been uh, – Orlando twice, Miami twice, Cali for for nine days, come back for three. Then I hit the uh, New Orleans-Houston run, uh, and then I fly to D.C., uh, and then I'm back, and then I'm ba- actually in Atlanta back-to-back weekends. Uh, and then uh, one shot to Tampa and one shot to Bradenton in between there separately, plus a wedding. So it, it's been uh, – it's not, not my wedding. I'm already married. And the spring game. And the spring game, yeah, which is which is going to be a lot of fun. So interior-wise, all reports so far seem promising about the Pope. Dante Lucas, man, I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, it'd be nice to have him push Mike Arnold maybe at one of those guard spots. That'd be really cool. I, I, I don't put Mike Arnold in sort of like the Bello Juwan Williams category, but he's not super promising that – the highlight film. Did you see that he tweeted out a highlight film that somebody made for him? Uh, yeah. I saw it. It was embarrassing. It, it was – look, doing your job is a good thing. Doing your job does not constitute a highlight. And just getting in front of somebody a couple times is not uh, – that's not a highlight at all. And that, that's that's embarrassing that, that anybody on Florida State's offensive line would consider that a highlight. And even worse – the judgment shown by tweeting that out is uh, is is questionable at best uh, because it was it was really not a highlight film in my opinion. I don't I don't remember too many offense highlights uh, provided from the offense line last year, but <laughs> no. uh, you know, good good for you if you're able to clobber one together. So just you know, a, a funny funny set of circumstances all around. But if you're if you're a fishy coach, you can't say that though, right? This is the, the other point is one thing that 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 Kendall talked about when, when I, when I heard him in Orlando was talk, he talked a little bit about celebrating. Wait, was it Kendall or was it a, it might've it might been um, uh, coach Morris, the head coach at Arkansas. They, they were back to back. It, it kind of runs together, but he was talking about finding reasons to celebrate every day because kids nowadays in this kind of culture, they don't react super well to, to negativity and, and they want to, they want to have sort of tangible feelings of progress, even on small things. And, and so Morris gave an example. He said, look, when we got to, to uh, the SMU, I mean, things were really bad. Uh, he didn't say this, but June Jones kind of let that place rot out. And he goes, here's the thing. It has to be tangible, has to be trackable, and, and we will record wins and losses it, like with our goals that we set every day. He goes, and so early on in our career, 
at SMU. He goes, our receivers coach tells me, Coach, our goal today is to have, during stretch period, we're going to have all of our helmets facing the same way. And Coach Morris says, "Oh man, we're gonna have, we're gonna have a hard season if, if that's if that's our goal." He goes, "So I walk out there, they got their helmets all facing the right way in stretch line." He's like, "Yes, sir, got them helmets lined up." Right. He goes, I, "I had to fake celebrating this, but the kids appreciate that kind of thing. They they like being told that they're making progress, assuming they are. So basically, celebrate the small victories. So set reasonable goals, celebrate the small victories. I I do think that they're being given." Uh, not unjustified positive feedback, but when they do something, I think they're given positive feedback, just from what I've been told, which is important because this the O-line's confidence is really low, and it should be because they were absolute garbage last year. But you can't go into this year with zero confidence. Like Even if they're going to suck again, you got to make sure they think they're at least going to be you know, okay because it, it does affect how you play. Celebrating the small gains, building their confidence up, and, and trying to work around the framework of that limitation, which will exist for at least this year, hopefully not years in the future, is, is going to be important. And, and I think that they are doing that so far. Not that it's going to be a good unit or anything. I, I, still, I still think it'll be bad, just not an embarrassment. I, I want to make sure we temper expectations on that. I think that's certainly what, what they're doing right now. And everything that I've heard, uh, and look, nobody in this fan base is going to consume any piece of optimism uh, during this offseason and, and expect that or extrapolate that to next year. But there is a, a small, quiet confidence that the offensive line uh, will be better prepared to execute what's asked of them. So uh, we'll see how that you know takes its shape over the course of the offseason and uh, through summer. But not as though there's any kind of a quarterback conversation or a discussion as to who is uh, quarterback one, but uh, – you know, Blackman continues to kind of evolve and becoming a little bit more of a clear uh, team leader, which has never been an issue with uh, with James. Always been a uh, exceptional locker room guy who's seemingly liked and respected by his uh, teammates. But uh, just naturally in football, I don't know why, but it, things seem to work a little bit better when you've got a quarterback that you can fully believe in uh, as far as just doing the right things by the program. And uh, for better or for not, Florida State does seem to have a guy that's uh, – that's a locker room plus right now. They do. I think he's going to be a much better leader than Yonder Francois ever was. So last episode we talked about how you know, maybe the, the veteran leadership on this team was not you know quite what maybe people think it is, and that a lot of the better leaders were going to be the younger guys. And we got a lot of questions immediately about that. Hey, are you including Blackman in that? Do you not think Blackman's a good leader? And I'm, I'm kind of glad that they asked me that because I was able to ask some people within the program, and the feedback I got was, no, we're pretty happy with Blackman as a leader right now. Like he's clearly, he has greater confidence now that he is the unquestioned guy for the job. So that was uh, that was a good thing there. I think he's been playing okay from the feedback I've heard. Like I don't I don't think he's lighting the world on fire, but you know I, th- I think he's going to be. I, I don't think he's going to be a step back from Francois or anything like that. All right, Ingram. Now let's stop and thank our second sponsor, Resolution Home Loans. Resolution is a great home mortgage company, I should know, I have my mortgage through them. When you call 844-FSU-LOAN or visit FSUHomeLoans.com, you're going to find a great experience. You're going to get awesome customer service, competitive rates. They're going to walk you through the process, and they want to get your thing done fast. Shannon is an excellent loan officer. He knows what he's talking about. He'll, He'll help you throughout the process and help you find the best loan for you. Maybe you're a veteran. They have special programs for veterans in the active military. It's called our Hamilton for Heroes program. 
They'll waive all lender fees on loans for veterans or active military on any purchase or refinance transaction. They can offer that on any loan that they fund directly through their company, which would include conventional loans, FHA loans, and of course, VA loans. In addition, after closing, they'll mail you an additional $100 gift card to say thank you for your service. So that's pretty cool there. A lot of good programs that Hamilton has going on. That's obviously the parent of Resolution. And uh, 844-FSU-LOAN, FSUHOMELOANS.com. Tell Shannon that a Bud Nagram sent you. And we are going to add a quick thing to the show right here. Vegas, or not Vegas, but an offshore casino, who I'm not going to give any publicity right now for a reason I'm going to say in a minute. Uh, they released their season win totals. So you can already bet on these, the regular season over-under win totals. So Florida State's came out at, uh, at seven and a half. What, what are you feeling on that? Yeah, I think that's the right number. I think you and I uh, kind of bounced this about a couple weeks ago, and that was where we landed uh, as far as the expectation that would be put on this this team. And uh, that's that's, in my opinion, the the right right number to have when it when you come with uh, looking at that schedule and and this roster. I, I think that's probably fair. I, I I keep going back and forth between seven and eight, so seven and a half is uh, is very fair uh, with with that in mind. This, there's some sneaky trouble spots on this schedule, but ultimately this line doesn't matter all that much because the max bet is $100 and they won't even let you rebet it again after 60 seconds. Normally, if you bet something, you wait 60 seconds, uh, I'm told, if you you know bet from a legal location. Of course, they'll let you bet it again because it gives them a chance to move the odds if you happen to hit them with a, a limit bet or a max bet, if you will. Uh, but here, the limits are $100 and they will not let you rebet it, which basically just means that this is kind of a fake line and released only so that radio talk show hosts and writers will write about it and give them publicity, knowing that it is the dead of the offseason and there's not a whole lot to talk about. And they are right, except we just did it without giving, giving them the pub. I don't, need, I don't need to give them any publicity. They're not an advertiser. So uh, seven and a half seems about right. I think Florida was nine uh, and Miami, I think, was eight and a half. My first inclination was actually to go under on Miami, but they have a very easy schedule. So I don't think I'm going to do that. Seven and a half. Give us your feedback. Certainly there's been many comments on Tomahawk about this. Uh, my, my little notifications were going off all day about the article I wrote. I think we had 139 comments, but I know that can't be right. It has to be, I think some probably got, got hidden for uh, foul language or inappropriate language use. So. Never on a college football message board. Never. That, hey, man, that, that's kind of the behind the scenes of, of running the uh, running the website there. Uh, but over 100 comments on that, so people are really excited to talk about that. My take on this is pretty simple. I think if you're in that 7-8 range, that's really fair. If you're in that kind of 6-6 six six and six or 9-3, and three, I don't think you're crazy. I, I think that's that's probably fine. If you're in the 5-7 and seven range or, or the 10-2 and two range or, or anything outside of that, I really somewhat question your process unless you have some crazy insider information uh, that, that I don't have. Look, college football is hard to predict. There's, there's a reason why I still podcast and, and don't just go bet it professionally. It's hard. Anywhere in those win totals is probably just fine. Seven and a half seems like a good number with the limited information that we have uh, this spring. And uh, what else we got? We got a couple more things here. A couple, a uh, couple listener questions. A couple, a little bit of recruiting talk. Florida State looks like it's in pretty good place to potentially add a running back over the next couple of weeks. Uh, pretty talented kid out of Largo, Florida. Indeed, man. Uh, Lawrence Tafali is a, a good running back. I don't know that he's a, in a like 
a Dalvin Cook level kid. In fact, I know he's not, but he's one of the best running backs in the state this year. It is a pretty nice year in the state uh, for the running back position. So that's encouraging. He, he came up there, said all the good things, and, and Florida State feels like they made a good impression on him. They have playing time to sell, which at the running back position is is one of the major things. Kids who play running back are used to getting the ball a lot in high school. It is one of the toughest positions to go from starting to sitting as far as the adjustment because you're used to having a huge impact on the game and you're going to almost none where you see other backs elsewhere play a lot of the freshmen. So early playing time is a big time sell in the running back recruiting business. The other portion of that is that they usually like to run behind quality offensive linemen. That has not been the case for the last, certainly the last year and then in certain instances in previous years. Uh, But if the back can be convinced that that's going to get better because the offensive line recruiting is improving, which I think it is somewhat, then that can also help you land him. So I, I do like their chances with him. Another interesting one here, uh, actually, the listener Ashley uh, asked us, have you ever seen a parent go on a visit without the son like Malachi Weidman's mom did this weekend at Virginia Day? So to set the stage here, uh, Malachi Weidman is a freak. I'm talking freak of a a receiver slash basketball player out out of the Bay Area. Um, I know a lot of schools are very intrigued by him. They're not sure if he's going to play football or basketball in college. Uh, But, man, this kid can go up and get the ball. Like, he has legitimate legitimate D1 basketball skills. Not just like, hey, you know, Brian Burns is a good basketball player. But, like, this guy is is a real real player. He didn't come to junior day uh, because he had to take uh, one of his tests, standardized tests. But his mom showed up. And uh, I got to tell you, that's a great sign. But Ashley asks, uh, have you ever seen a, a parent go on a visit without the, without the kid? You've, uh, you said you have seen this historically uh, in another instance? I have, actually. So I, I was at IMG Academy's um, Media Day. Or Media Day, or maybe I was just up there for summer. I'm up there a lot because it's, you know, it's a good place to talk to recruits, which is what I do. And Noah Kane was talking to me about Penn State. Noah Kane is a four-star running back out of Texas. And uh, if you know where he signed, you know where this story is going. But he uh, he was at IMG, and I was asking him kind of, you know, what – or excuse me, he was actually from Baton Rouge but had lived in Texas. So I was asking him primarily about LSU and Texas because those are schools to which he had been linked before. And I said, you know, Noah, so what what do you think about this? He's like, I I also really like Penn State. I was like, okay, cool. And, you know, these kids say this stuff all the time, so you – I usually, I don't want to say disregard it, but unless they give me an actual reason why they like the school that is legitimate, then sometimes it's just fluff, right? Like everybody says, oh, I love Oregon. Why? The uniforms. Well, okay. Nobody's going to pick a school based on uniforms. So next. And he said, well, I, well, I like the education. I really love Coach Franklin. And I, I couldn't go this last weekend, but uh, my parents actually went up there for a visit. And I was like, ooh, okay. Well, if the parents are going to take their money and fly somewhere, on a visit, they're not going to do that unless the kid really likes the school and is telling them, hey, mom and dad, please check this place out. You know, I, I really like it. Because otherwise, I mean, what's the point, right? The parents, they're not, not going to take their free time to go do that. So I think that's an excellent sign for Florida State that his mom was going to come up. And uh, now the next step will be to get him uh, back on campus again. But he's a, a very high-level prospect athletically and, and someone who uh, – on sort of the the 90th percentile projection ranking, right? Like, you know, if you look at like maybe a 10th percentile and a 90th, the 90th, I mean, he's like, you know, dominating the ACC, going up to get balls in a red zone type thing. So if he hits it, 
and he actually comes, that that would be a, that'd be a huge thing. Yeah, big, uh, tall, kind of lanky wide receiver, kind of in the mold of guys that they've added. Uh, big six foot four kid out of Sarasota. If our listeners aren't otherwise familiar with him, uh, somebody to watch and have to think that it's only a positive. Like his his leaping ability is on a different level than the guys they've signed, though. Legitimately, like like go watch Malachi Wyman's basketball highlights. That's they're fun. So Bud basically said he's going to turn into uh, Andre Cooper for the uh, old, older, uh, older Florida State fans out there. Probably Florida State's best jump ball guy that uh, that they've ever had. So uh, with that, we'll move to uh, Kyle's question. Kyle uh, first compliments the uh, content that we provide, which is always much appreciated. And uh, he says that Jeff Sims seems like he's going to end up a high four star guy. From what I can gather, uh, he does compare. How does he compare to Florida State quarterback recruits that have signed over the past uh, decade, going back to 2010? Uh, is the point that he makes uh, uh, the kind of delineation in time? I'm putting Jameis at the top because of a Natty and a Heisman number one pick, uh, and that'd be hard to get a better resume than that. But does Sims come in near the top, in the middle, or closer in the bottom uh, of terms of talent of uh, the last 10 years? Sure. Okay. So talent-wise, the, the question just focusing on, on, on talent. So I'm going to evaluate these guys only based on what they were as recruits, in my opinion. So I'm going to ignore that Jameis did all that stuff. He's still number one. Okay. Like Jameis, talent-wise, was, was next level. He is not on Jameis's level. After that, I'm going to list these out. Help, help me list these just so I can, I, I can think about this. We had EJ... Uh, DeAndre, DeAndre with an A, Malik, who else? Constantino. McGuire. Kid out of Mobile. Oh, Coker. Yeah. Coker was definitely, uh, he was the year before Jameis, right? Yes. Okay, so he's not on Jameis's level. That's, that's Jeff Sims we're talking about here. The, uh, the the four star or is he a four star yet? I, I really haven't been looking at the rankings lately. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, he's certainly, yeah, yeah. I think he is. He he should be. I, I got to see him uh, last week or two weekends ago at, at Miami uh, Adidas, and, and he played pretty well. He's also an excellent recruiter for Florida State right now, which is something they desperately need. Like the fit could not be better. I know we talked about that a couple times on the show already. I think Malik actually had the second most talent at any of those guys. Now he also had other issues you know he was real pill off the field so you know i mean that just some stuff there uh but i I would say malik henry too as far as just pure talent like the question asks then for me i think it would probably probably be sims or ej i I was never a big deandre guy i just had real issues with deandre's completion percentage i I thought he had you know kind of an inability to to accurately get the ball to his receivers at times in high school and uh it improved somewhat at img but but it was still a concern of mine. So I'm going to say I would probably have him tied with EJ. Uh, DeAndre Johnson was, to me, a high-floor, low-ceiling player. Coker actually had a lot of tools there. You can probably put Coker in that group with, yeah, I would with put Sims him, and EJ. I would put him right there. I really would. Coker Coker had a lot of – He was very know, raw, but but he did have a lot of tools. He was a multi-sport arm, kid. Multiple, yeah, basketball player of the year in Mobile. There was, there was a lot to work with there talent-wise. Yeah, so I, I would say probably in that in that free range there. And I will say that the gap between Malik and Jameis 
is much bigger than the gap between Malik and that group of three that we just outlined. It's sort of like like Jameis just on a a different tier. We're uh, undoubtedly qualified to speak about Malik Henry since we are, uh, according to Netflix, I believe, a Florida State coach and uh, some other designation that they gave us when they sampled the Nolcast and never referenced it. So thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Also, uh, we forgot we forgot uh, one player, James Blackman. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> Who is? Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, I I think talent wise, Blackman's probably a little bit behind. We're like at the same age where, where, where Sims was. Although I don't think the gap is is enormous necessarily. Sims is already bigger, I think, physically than than Blackman is, and was is a lot bigger than Blackman was at the same age. I mean, probably twenty pounds bigger as as players in March of their senior years or junior years rather because they're, they're becoming seniors. So, all right, now we're going to go to our hoops correspondent, Matt Minnick. Uh, Matt, we're really excited to have you on here with us and uh, very excited, man. It's going to be cool. Let's, let's talk a little hoops. Yeah, let's do it. Happy to be here, fellas. Matt, uh, re- really impressive year. Uh, obviously a lot of conversation recently about Florida state being pretty aggressively snubbed in both the, uh, Coach of the Year selection with Hamilton coming in fourth and the fact that uh, despite having a, a guy that uh, finished with a six-man-of-the-year award and uh, another guy that finished uh, what I think fourth for the defensive player of the year that uh, no one was able to make either the first, second, or third team or the uh, all-conference defensive team. So, uh, you know, you don't want to get too caught up in uh, in things like this. And ultimately, if we look back in this year, five years from now, we won't be uh, talking about how many coach of the years or how many all-conference selections existed. But a, a little bit of a a little bit of a backhanded way for the conference to uh, end the year in which Florida State, by all counts, really overperformed and, and had a year that wasn't necessarily expecting. I think, yes. I think the answer to all of that is yes. I think that, um, you know, I kind of chalk this up to the same thing that I do actually college refereeing, uh, not just in basketball, but across college sports in general, is that sometimes I'm, I'm more likely to put the blame on uh, just a lack of knowledge or I, I don't, don't want to call people, who, uh, you know, professionals ignorant at their job, but I, I think that it might be more of a lack of awareness than it is maybe like, oh, I'm going to try to stick it to FSU. Um, I, I, you know, Coach Hamilton runs, uh, I mean, he's known for it. He, his system is depth. The FSU, we talked about it, the one through five ain't going to beat you, but one through 10 is better than your 10. And so that lends itself to not necessarily any one player having astronomical statistical numbers. So I think in a vacuum, you could look at, okay, yeah, Terrence Mann like, doesn't excel at any one area other than just being a good basketball player. Maybe he's not on it. Beyondu Cabangeli, like, actually, he, I, he's probably the biggest snub there, um, you know, for not being at least third team. But, you know, okay, well, maybe he doesn't start, so, you know, he's not on it. And then you go back, like, Jonathan Isaac did, did a lot of good things, but nothing other than shot blocking, maybe elite. Um, and you keep going back, Cora White, Malik Beasley, all these kind of guys that didn't make the list. I think when you put it all together, it's sort of like, well, some of those guys should have made it, right? There shouldn't just have been as as Mike Rogner pointed out, one person since the league expanded. So I think, I, I don't know. I don't really know what to say at all. It, it's sort of like people looking for something to get mad about. I'd say the bigger thing. So then why does Coach Hamilton not get at least second for Coach of the Year, right? Why If he's doing this with sort of like a system that's uniquely his, 
And then Florida State, for the first time in program history, wins 13 ACC games. Um, they're going to finish with their fewest number of losses, guaranteed uh, eight or fewer losses for only the second time in four decades. Um, so why then is he not maybe given more of a benefit of the doubt, whereas someone like Tony Bennett is? Yeah, that's that's kind of odd for sure. It, it, I mean, him not winning the, like coach of the year, and and fourth is a joke, man. Like it, fourth, it takes fourth skill to put all the pieces together. You know, yeah, like, fourth, fourth is a joke. I, I guess I can see him not winning, but like it does take. I mean, managing all of that time for all those guys is a big deal, and that's managing egos is a big deal. Um, recruiting pieces that fit to the system that you want to establish and run. And, you know, honestly, I'll say the same could could be said this year of Buzz Williams. I've kind of been on Buzz's case for a few years. He doesn't typically show up. uh, I don't know. His his teams have sort of flaked out in big games. But there's a guy that dealt with the loss of his starting point guard, and and they still finished fifth in the ACC. I I, I definitely don't – I can see both – Leonard Hamilton and Buzz Williams thinking what Tony Bennett did exactly what was expected of preseason top five, Virginia Roy Williams, did exactly what was expected of preseason top five or eight UNC. Right. Exactly. I mean, it, there's something to be said for meeting expectations, but at the same time, like it, exceeding them is, is better <laughs> for sure. So Florida state obviously has Virginia tech uh, to open the ACC tournament if you could, if you want to give us a little bit about that game, but more importantly, would would it be better, you know, for this team to lose, kind of, you know, just kind of lose the game and focus on NCAA? And also, if you would, uh, sort of a, a recap of the season um, as, as you saw it. I mean, it, to, you know, to the layman, it looks like they really, really exceeded expectations. And uh, I, I think we need to appreciate the season for what it was. Yeah. I So I think they did exceed expectations. I'll say that maybe they didn't, quite exceed them as much as some i think a lot of folks wrote this team off when they started one and four if you go back and listen to the the podcast we did back in january or whatever um you know we sat here and said hey a a two and three start probably is not like it's probably realistic so really after the first five games fsu was one behind where i thought maybe they would be and then they ended up finishing probably a game and a half like one to two games ahead um, I think at Syracuse was a win that I probably wouldn't have, uh, had, you know, put down for them at, at Clemson. And then you, you feel like you're probably going to usually stub your toe on the road against a team like a Georgia Tech or a Miami or something like that. They managed to not do that. So I think by all accounts, they, they over-exceeded expectations. And particularly on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, since February 1st, we're talking about the fifth best defensive team in the country um, adjusted for strength of schedule, fifth best in the country. Um, so it's it's it, they were able from the non-conference year season to kind of their offense stayed good, not great, and the defense once Phil Coford came back fully healthy turned into an elite unit. So yeah, I, I think that that is right. They exceeded expectations. I, I say this being kind of uh, contradicting myself in the fact that I've been able to watch uh, two really nice ACC tournament runs that have taken place in Atlanta over the past uh, eight or nine years. But is there any, is there any success in the tournament that you could have this weekend that you would trade at all for, for what happens in the the broader pool of 64? 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I, I think actually winning against Virginia Tech, but you know, you mentioned the first game is against Virginia Tech. We, we just saw FSU play Virginia Tech on senior night, and uh, that was a doozy of a game. And frankly, it's kind of a it's it's a cool game because you have uh, Virginia Tech who loves to just you know gun away from three, and you have Florida State who can shoot the three, but really would like to break you down off the dribble and either lob at the basket or kick out then to an open three. So it's it's a unique contrast of styles. So right now, Florida State's probably feeling really good about themselves on the four seed line. They could theoretically be a five seed, especially because sometimes the committee has to do weird things when when eight or nine teams from one conference make it because you can't have, you don't want to put a team playing its own conference mate um, in the second round. If they are able to beat Virginia Tech, that's another quad one win. That's a win against someone who is directly competing for the, for a four seed with them. So I would say that would take that from like probably on the four seed to lock it in on the four seed uh, and maybe you know put you in that three seed conversation, which honestly is a pretty big deal. Five seeds lose to 12s a lot. Four seeds lose to 13s much less frequently. Uh, in the second round, a four is going to play a five, so it doesn't really matter much there. But just in terms of winning that first game in the NCAA tournament, being a four it is a big difference compared to to being a five. Beyond that, I, I don't know. I don't know that beating Virginia is necessarily realistic, although if you do, you probably lock in a three. And hey, once you win that game, now you're in the ACC championship game. So why not go ahead and I mean, the reality is, is that since the ACC shifted it to have the tournament end on Saturday, you still get all the way till Thursday at the earliest to play. So I don't know. I, I say beat Virginia Tech to lock in that four seed and then see see where the chips fall. There, there's only one thing left to do. If right. You guys are, are, are major league fans here. I, I can't uh, I can't finish that because, you know, family friendly <laughs> yeah. show. but uh, Google that if you, if you haven't seen the movie. Matt, you, you mentioned something interesting, and this is a little bit off script, but you, you know, you said uh, five seeds lose to 12s much more often than fours lose to 13s. Uh, is that because they are, are 13s sort of like where they put some of these automatic conference champions, whereas 12s are like some of your at-largest who finished hot but maybe didn't have the best resume? Or like it can't just be that they're, you know, teams like, you know, 61 through 64 playing teams, uh, you know, 13 through 16, right? I guess I'd, it's probably a confluence of a lot of things. First of all, fives are probably slightly worse than fours, so you have sure. that. Thirteens are typically where you start to see automatic qualifiers. There, there in the past has been some automatic qualifiers that maybe sneak up to like a 12. I could see St. Mary's being a 12 this year, um, which is they just beat Gonzaga to, to automatically qualify out of the West Coast Conference. But yes, t- a 12 seed is typically – a major conference team who maybe went through injury, maybe just underachieved, and they have snuck into the tournament and, and perhaps feel like they have something to prove. And, and they probably have a bit more talent and depth than your standard 13 or 14 seed. So that there is sort of, typically speaking, like a dividing line between the quality of a 12 versus the quality of a 13. Also, four seeds can often, not always, but often will get protected seeding, meaning that you play closer to home. So that would um, maybe have a slight benefit uh, as well. But yeah, I mean, five seeds beat a four seed. I mean, there's almost one of those every year, right? It's almost like a 25% clip. Whereas that that number at 13s over fours is is much closer to 15 than it is than it is 25. Sure. And, and, you know, I obviously you said Florida State most likely in that kind of three to five range seating wise. Um, 
No, no real way that they would drop down to a six, right? Really, I, that would be extremely unlikely. I think the only, if if for whatever reason the committee views them as a five, which I don't right now, I think that they're solidly a four. But if for whatever reason they view them as a, as a five, and then they get bumped a seed line down to a six because the committee is allowed to move teams up or down one seed line for bracket eligibility purposes. Uh, again, not playing your conference mate uh, opponent, BYU can't play on Sundays, things like that. I, that would be the, but that seems very unlikely to me. If there was a, if there was any one particular player that you could uh, tell us that he would both be both healthy and perform at kind of the top of his level throughout the course of the postseason, anybody come immediately to mind? Well, uh, Trent Forrest does come to mind, but he's not going to be healthy, so I won't use him as the answer because he's he's just not going to be healthy. Um, I, you know, this is going to, I think. I'm going to go maybe a little bit off the beaten path here and say PJ Savoy. Um, I'm I'm saying that with the understanding that a guy like Terrence Mann is consistent. He gives you what you're going to get. Fiondu Cavangeli has proven, I mean, he's going to get, get to the foul line. He's going to, you know, have be an impact both inside and outside. PJ Savoy gives something to Florida state that not a ton of other players do, which is, a real threat to stretch the defense and open up guys like man, Kevin Gelly, Forrest, um, you know, even a, a, a Kofer to work underneath. And so if he came out in the first, if he came out in the ACC tournament and hit a few threes, came out in the first round of the NCAA tournament and, you know, went, let's say four for seven from three. Now every other team is thinking, uh Oh, the one guy who can really shoot it from outside, and, and I'm talking like 28 feet, he's hot. And we have to change our defense when he's on the court. And that is something that gives Florida State a different dimension. Matt, uh, a lot of people want to know, what like, what are the likely destinations for Florida State in this tournament? Ooh, uh, <laughs> I don't know that there is a likely destination. I'll say this. Uh, before last night, I would have said that just playing in the West region was probably likely because if if three ACC teams were one seed, so Virginia, Duke, North Carolina, they're very unlikely to put a four or five seed Florida State in, in a bracket with them. So it, they would have been in Gonzaga's region. Um, but now with Gonzaga losing, I, I don't know that they're a guarantee for a one seed. So that kind of changes things up. Another thing to keep in mind that just because you're in a West region or the South region, like that doesn't change where you can play your first pod. So they could be in the West region and play in Jacksonville. They could be in the East region and play in Jacksonville of more. I think concern for that is there's a lot, there's not a lot of Midwestern locations. And so you have teams like Michigan, Michigan state, Kansas, Texas tech, all vying for like two to three seeds and they're going to have to go somewhere. And while a four seed is protected, a three seed or a two seed gets like hierarchy of being protected. So if LSU gets sent to Jacksonville because there is nowhere for them to be sent anywhere in like Arkansas or New Orleans, then that might bump Florida State down from Jacksonville. Uh, so I, I hate to say this, but I don't know that there is a likely destination. Uh, I, I think that there's still too many unknowns. I got you. I was gonna. I, I thought you might say LSU might get might get sent to prison. Uh, <laughs> that's what's happening. This week. You know, you know, it's funny you bring that up. How is the committee gonna judge them if they don't have their coach? If they don't have Javante Smart? I, there's just a lot of there's a 
unusual amount of, of items that we're not sure of. Zion Williamson hasn't played for Duke in a while. Uh, Kansas hasn't had uh, two of their players, one of which uh, sort of took like a random leave of absence from the team. Virginia Tech's had Justin Robinson hurt. There is just an unusual amount at the top of these sort of unknowns that we really don't know how the committee is going to judge those. And Kansas is an Adidas school, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, although yeah. I guess LSU's Nike, so you, know, you, you never can tell. I really appreciate you coming on. Ingram, you got anything else? No, man, that was fantastic. We've scheduled uh, Matt to join us as well a, a week from now, so we'll, uh, we'll be able to fully know what's in front of us, where everything is, and, and be able to try to provide uh, you, the listener, with a, the best idea possible of what to look forward to in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, yeah, and let me. I'll plug. Uh, I'll plug both FSU and and one of y'all's sponsors too. Uh, before I go, since we won't probably talk again till next week, after Florida State makes this uh, brilliant run to the ACC championship, uh, you know this this week or weekend, Sunday. I think the selections they're doing like a we can come out, come out to Madison Social and watch the selection Sunday. I, I believe the team's even going to be there, um, so that could be something uh, for folks in Tallahassee want to come out and do. That sounds like an excellent thing to do. Yeah. It would be a fantastic idea. I'm not sure we can fully confirm that, uh, but that is a that is a very much like Check into case. it. Check into way. it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can confirm that you should go there on Selection Sunday. I mean, like <laughs> yeah. that, that we can't confirm. And, and yeah. they will have yeah. TVs on. And there might so. even be really tall players, or, or excuse me, tall students walking around there. But uh, we'll also, see. I did see this CBS selection show this year will not be doing uh, the the uh, reveal in alphabetical order. <laughs> might be like the most hated, like universally hated non-political idea. Yeah, ever. that is good. I didn't see that, but that is great news. Okay. All right. You can well, read the stuff for, uh, at Tomahawk Nation. Yeah, Matt, thanks Matt. for having me on. No doubt, dude. Enjoyed it, and uh, we will talk to you again in a week's time. Great. Looking forward to it. All right. Uh, a couple more here. Next uh, next question comes from Daniel. Daniel writes, uh, love the program and thanks for all the expertise. Been listening for over a year now. Appreciate it, Daniel. Have a quick question. Listen to three to four Florida State podcasts. And I remember every single podcast said record doesn't affect recruiting. It's all about relationships. I remember specifically on the Noel cast saying that unless something goes crazy like a two-win season, the recruiting class wouldn't be affected too much. But after National Signing Day, this philosophy shifted to we went five and seven. What do you expect? Of course, we're not going to recruit well. This makes it seem like nobody expected Florida State to miss on that many recruits down the stretch. If you can expand on why this philosophy shifted from midseason to post-national signing day. In my opinion, going five and seven would classify as, quote, something goes crazy. Now, maybe we said like a two-win season. If we did, we probably should have said more. I don't think we said that, did we? I mean, maybe two-win season was was thrown out as like a, a, a bit of sure. hyperbole. And I'll also point out, as I'm one to do, we really weren't far away from having a two-win season. So, yeah, it, it went uh, went about as poorly as it possibly could. Anyway, yeah, I, I think like that's not super within the 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 realm of of likely. What, what was their what was their win total last year? Seven and a half, eight, I think it was. Roughly the same as what it is this year. Oh, as far as expected win total, uh, yeah, I think it was. A, I think it was a full game north of where where we were right now. Yeah. So, to go five and seven would be 
not a very likely record for for a team with with that kind of win number, right? It's possible, but it's it's very unlikely. So yeah, to have a losing record is going to affect your recruiting. Uh, also, as we discussed a lot, we think that they should have got off some of these high-profile out-of-state targets with whom they had excellent chances to land over the summer because they really did have elite-level relationships with them. However, they had to have a little bit better product to to back it up. They didn't do that because they didn't do a very good job, and also a lot of other factors occurred. And so they should have cut bait earlier and set, and tried to go after some more Plan B prospects as opposed to some Plan C guys, which is who, in my opinion, they uh, they, they got a lot of. So that's kind of where I'm uh, where I'm at with that uh, right now. But I, I I love the question. Did we say something like a two win season? If so, we should have said more. Uh, and if so, that's our fault. If not. I think most listeners would probably think that going five and seven would be something crazy. Yeah, I think you nailed it on the head. Uh, I think I think it was still very possible to recruit well, um, and I think it was also uh, very much depended upon you adjusting expectations accordingly uh, and realizing that despite having a lot of uh, positive things to sell over the summer and, and a message of change that uh, – Ultimately, that wasn't going to penetrate when you're, uh, you know, it's not going to win too many times when you're trying to sign a five-star linebacker out of Mississippi or an offensive guard at a a Baton Rouge or whatever else. Got to have a lot of different things come together for you to be able to go in and and win major, super competitive recruiting battles against schools like LSU, Alabama, and our old friend in Athens right now, who uh, seems to be winning just about every damn competition he throws his hat into. Yeah, they, they don't lose a whole lot. They uh, don't. When they decide, they, they really, you know, Athens just, uh, I guess, just makes makes an argument that a, a young man has a hard time saying no to. If they land the Olympics, uh, do you think there will be an investigation? <laughs> well, it's already spilling over into basketball, so who knows? Yeah, I'm sure uh, I'm sure they'll probably sign, you know, one or two kids that would have otherwise been first-round picks in the MLB draft and uh, everything <laughs> else. So, Last question of the night here. And Cam asks, question for the pod, specifically Ingram. So this one's for you. What happens first? FSU wins an ACC title in football or Rangers beat Celtic in premiership? Okay, so I'll keep this real short. Is me talking about Rangers is me in all likelihood podcasting to myself. And I think you and I are both pretty conscientious to try not to uh, let our own personal things interfere or at least uh, make its way into this podcast when it's at the detriment of the podcast. Uh, I would take... Uh, Rangers in this argument because I think they have a legitimate chance to win the uh, Scottish uh, Premiership next year, whereas I do not see Florida State beating Clemson in football as long as uh, as long as the uh, intermural, intramural basketball playing uh, long-haired quarterback is uh, is in the upstate of South Carolina. So that is my, that is my brief introduction of uh, of Rangers soccer into the into the Nolcast and appreciate are the question. Odds, Cam. Are there odds I can bet on this right now? Oh yeah, <laughs> that would be. A, <laughs> Gonna, that would be quite a, a confluence of my interest uh, making its way into one bet. Yeah, if I was, you know, in a, if I was in a place where it was legal, uh, I would look this up and potentially place a wager on it. We'll we'll circle back to this sometime in the in the future. Uh, and some find some way of incorporating a, a good bet to be placed on the topic. You can get uh, seventy to one on Scotland to win the women's World Cup, though. Mm. Okay. You got any intel on that? I don't. I don't have anything on that. No. USA is apparently really good at women's soccer. I had no idea. They're, oh they're, yeah, yeah. That's they're, uh, they're the odds on favorite. Something we do well. Uh, very much tied to Title Nine there. 
provided us a lot of a lot of traction in the Olympic sports there for our our females to compete in. Hey, five stars on iTunes for sure. If y'all can, I uh, very much appreciate that. And if you've given us a review a while ago, cool thing is you can do it again. You you, you can pop that five star review over and over again uh, as often as it lets you, and we do appreciate it. Always enjoy it. Look forward to uh, talking to you guys next week and uh, continue to talk about spring practice and also what the NCAA basketball tournament holds in store for Florida State.